Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the people, wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to a rest over the place where the child was. was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they opened him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. All right, good morning. Good morning. Hey, Butch, thanks for reading that. Um, also, thank you for sticking to that passage. He warned me in the lobby he might read Revelation 2, and let's just say uh, the messages have a very different vibe than what we're uh, going for this morning. Um, good morning and Happy New Year. Thank you for that such warm response. Um, it's great to see you. If you're a guest with us, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a new year, and we're excited as Cody said, for what God has, where he's going to take us this year as a church. And uh, around this time of year, this being our first service of the new year, around this time of year we hear phrases, right, like fresh start and, and clean slate and all of those things. And those are good and, and those aren't bad. And at the same time, we know that just because the calendar date changes, that there are things in the past, there are things from last year that carry over to this year with us. We can feel that. Maybe you can relate to this. There are still certain pressures that carry over. There are certain pains. There are conflicts. There are questions. There are decisions that have to be made. There are things that you wrestle with. No matter what age you are, and let me just say that. I think it's important that we say this on a regular basis, that this, what God's going to share with us, what he's going to say to us, it's for any and all ages today, as is any Sunday. God's word is for you. You are not too young for it. You are not too old for it. He is in the constant business of wanting to work on your heart and work on your life. And so we feel some of these tensions. We have different longings and even fears. Some things that keep us up at night. Places that we feel this pressure or tension um, and what we want and what we need, even if we aren't fully aware of it, is rest and reordering. And ultimately it's for our good. 
And as we'll see through this very familiar passage today, this passage of the wise men, that's what Jesus offers us. As you sit here today, no matter what you came in with, no matter your past, no matter your background, no matter what is on your mind and on your heart today, this is also what he offers and wants for you. So let me pray for us, and we're going to walk through this together. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for a new year. Thank you for newness. And Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would find us where we are this morning. Every age, every heart, everything on our mind, every tension that we feel, every longing we have, the fears that we bring in with us, would you find us there? Would you speak to us? Would you saturate us with the truth of your gospel and what that means for us? For our good, for your glory, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let us walk through this. Matthew chapter 2, here's how it starts. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So first we have these wise men, and it might be a good question. Who are these wise men? That's an interesting title. We don't walk around with that title today. If you do, I would challenge you to drop it, right? But uh, who are these wise men? They were astrologers. They were astrologers from regions to the east of Israel. They were not Jewish. That's very important. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But they were educated, and they would have had wealth. They would have been respected and held in high esteem. So how did they know about this coming king? Well, most likely, though they lived hundreds of miles away from Israel, they were familiar with the Old Testament prophecies from Jewish people who had been forced to settle in their city centuries before. Prophecies like from the word of Isaiah that says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Here's a question, though, that we should think about here, right off the bat. What did the wise men really mean by King of the Jews? It's an interesting title. Let's keep reading. When Herod, the king, the current king, heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Again, what did these wise men really mean by king of the Jews? Well, verse 4 actually gives us clarity on this. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ or Messiah was to be born. Here's the deal. Herod had been called king of the Jews for 40 years now. Guess what? He loved the title. It was his title. He liked being king of the Jews. He didn't want to lose that title. But he had never been called Messiah. He had never been called the Christ. No one referred to him with this title because he and others knew that this title was reserved for only one, literally meaning the long-awaited, God-anointed ruler. One that would come and he would usher in a kingdom that had been like 
that would be unlike any other kingdom because he would be unlike any other king. He would essentially level the playing field on humanity. You see it in this very passage. He would bring everyone into the same playing field. So King Herod, he has some interesting feelings about this. Here's a little background. If you're not super familiar with Herod, it's important that you know this because it kind of shines a light on who he is. He was Jewish by practice, but he was more of a Roman puppet, if you will. He did whatever they wanted him to do so he could keep his power. He didn't want to create issues. He was consumed by luxury. He built large, lavish palaces, and he printed his name all over them. He didn't exactly print his name because they didn't have printers back then, but he had his name carved in stone all over his palaces. He loved having all of these lavish things. In fact, this was pretty interesting, he found a way to preserve dates and figs, which were like these luxury items um, at the time. He found a way to store them for years. A group of archaeologists in the 1940s, they came up on one of his storehouses, and they found still um, figs and dates that had been stored by him 2,000 years earlier. Amazing. He was also consumed about power, and he was paranoid about losing it. How much so, you ask? Great question. He had his wife killed because he mistakenly thought she was conspiring against him. And just for good measure, he had her mother and her brother killed as well. And a few years later, he had all three of his own sons killed for the same reason. He only cared about prospering himself and his standing before others. Once, being short on money, check this out, historically true, he had 45 of the wealthiest citizens executed on false charges so that he could take over their estates. And if that isn't wild enough, on his deathbed, he ordered that dozens of other nobles be put to death at the very moment of his death because he wanted there to be mourning throughout the region and he was afraid that his own death wouldn't warrant enough mourning. Luckily, he died and they did not carry that out, right? But that's a little bit about Herod. That's who he is. He is consumed by this longing for power and notoriety, and prestige. Now, if we zoom out just for a moment, in this account, we have three characters. We have the wise men who are searching, they're longing, desiring. We have Herod, gripped by fear. And in all of that, we have Jesus. This baby who's been born just a few months earlier, in this little town of Bethlehem. And with these three characters, we have two bookends, if you will, of this account. We have longing and we have fear. Longing and fear. These are the bookends on Epiphany. We'll get into what Epiphany is here in just a second. But at one end, you have longing. You have the wise men from the east following the star. They've left their own country, the familiar, the usual, the known, in search of and desiring something new, something better. It's as if there is a hole in their lives and they realize that this one, this king who has been born king of the Jews might actually have the power to fill it. And so they go searching. They don't know exactly where this journey will take them. They're following a star, only that they have to take this journey. It's as if there is a call on their lives that they cannot, they cannot go unanswered. And so you have longing on one end. At the other end, you have Herod, the book into fear. 
He was frightened, as Matthew tells us, and all Jerusalem with him. He's threatened by the possibility of a new king. His power and identity are at risk of being lost. Maybe he fears an impoverished and diminished life. He calls others to himself, chief priests and scribes, but he stays where he is, grasping and clinging to what is familiar and known, simply trying to hold on, but gripped by fear. Both the wise men in their longing and Herod in his fear are responding to the same thing, the child, Jesus, and this birth of new life and what that will mean. It's very clear here. Herod is scared of Jesus because he sees him as a threat to his greatest longing, which is power. And when that's threatened, fear creeps in, and so it keeps him at a distance. And here's the deal. I can relate with this. Maybe you can relate with this because we can do the same thing. We're afraid, even though we're Christians, for those who are, if you have a relationship with Jesus, and if you don't, you're welcome here. Thanks for exploring the faith with us. But we can be afraid that if we get too close to Jesus, that he's going to mess with our desires, with our longings, that he'll actually ask us to lay certain things down and pick other things up that we didn't necessarily want or expect. Or he's going to ask us to wait on certain things, even good things that we want right now. And so we can keep a distance because we're fearful that he's going to mess with the order of things, or at least the desire ordered of things in our life. I feel this all of the time. And here's the deal. You want to know the truth? He absolutely will. (laughs) He will reorder your life. He will seek to realign your heart, to put things back in the proper places. But ultimately, it's not for your harm. It's for your good. It's for your good. Even though we don't see all of the puzzle pieces of our life put into the exact place and we can't see the future, he wants to do this for our good. But we can feel this tension. We can feel it, especially when it comes to these disordered longings. A desire for control, for praise, for approval, for comfort. I mean, you name it. I love Jesus, but each and every day I feel this. This tension of ultimately worship. That's what it is. I feel myself pushing back from the table, trying to manipulate God into make him, making him into who I want him to be or to give, to give me what I want him to give me. But where does this really get us if we really stop and think about it? Oftentimes, it simply leads us to discouragement, to being exhausted, to being paranoid, to feeling lonely, confused, always striving, never being filled, constantly competing. And for what? Here's the deal. You and I, we were never meant to be our own God. And nothing and no one else was ever meant to hold that place because it cannot offer us what Jesus offers us no matter how much it or we may try to convince ourselves otherwise. Luckily, there's something far better that Jesus has for us. And what we see next, though, is what happens when fear goes unchecked or isn't taken to the right place. It turns into desperation. Look at this. So they told him he wanted to know where this baby was born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned to the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, 
bring word to me that I may come and worship him. And so Herod gathers these religious leaders together, and he tries to nail down exactly where this child is going to be born. And they point him back to the Old Testament, specifically Micah 5. And they say he's going to be born, or he has been born, in Bethlehem. And if you don't know much about Bethlehem, it's not a large city. It's a small city. It's about six miles outside of Jerusalem. And although it may seem like an insignificant location, Jesus isn't the first king to be born there. This was actually David's hometown. This is where the prophet Samuel anointed him to be king over Israel. This is the family line that the promised Messiah would come from. As Matthew says in the first line of its book, the son of David. Herod's fear gets so bad that he gathers a secret meeting and he comes up with a fabricated story about wanting to worship this baby, this new king. But spoiler alert, he had no interest in worshiping Jesus. Quite the opposite. He simply wants to have him put to death. Just like every other fear in Herod's life, he simply wants it to go away instead of taking it to its rightful place. We can fall into that same trap. But with the wise men, we see such a different response. Look at this. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? They fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. And I want you to just think about this. This is much more than them opening their treasures. This is them opening up their hearts to something better. These were educated men. These were wealthy men. These were men who had a better education than most. They were held in such high esteem, and even in their position, they knew that there had to be something more. They knew that there had to be a greater longing. They knew that their life was meant for something more, meant to belong to someone more, and they finally find it, or it finds them, Jesus, and they worship they worship. They opened their treasures. They offered them these gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream. Thank goodness for that dream. Thank you, God. Not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Now, I don't want to, like, call them eisegesis. I'm not just going to, like, put my own thoughts into this, but I do have a thought that comes to mind when it says this. I find it so interesting. It says, Obviously, they wanted to avoid Herod, but it says they returned another way, and I just, I, I can't help but think about how they came to him seeking to worship. They, they worship their Savior, and they, and they leave a different way. And isn't that true of all of us? When we encounter Jesus, that we're forever changed as he seeks to actually realign and do work on our heart and our lives and reorder things, that we're forever changed, you don't leave the same. I find that so interesting. So interesting. And so how do they respond? They worship. Their greatest longing is now found in Jesus. And they are able to give what was most valuable to them because they found something more valuable. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, not cheap. 
incredibly expensive, but they lay it all down and give it to Jesus. Now everything comes underneath him. That's what I love. Everything comes underneath him. It's reordered, if you will. Um, Silas, he's about to turn five, and this year he's finally started to understand what Christmas is about. Thank goodness. Um, it's been really fun. It was fun around the house. Um, he, he would even share, well, hey, what's Christmas about, buddy? And he's like, the birth of Jesus. We get to celebrate Jesus being born. I'm just like, oh, thank goodness. As a pastor, dad, thank goodness. Thank goodness you said that. Um, no, but, but we have these conversations, and he's finally starting to pick up, and he's finally starting to get it, and it's so exciting, and, it, and it, it's so good. And then three weeks outside of Christmas, I make a huge mistake. Um, my parents, they send this box of gifts, and I think, hey, instead of just putting this in you know, a closet for a while and then bringing it out, um, I'm just going to, let's just put these gifts underneath the tree, like three weeks out from Christmas. Um, it's great, right? Wailing, gnashing of teeth from Silas. Um, he wanted to open these gifts, and he wanted to open these gifts now, to the point that he said Christmas was just too far away, and it needed to come now. And I could feel this tension within him, and I knew that I caused it. Um, and so we had to have this conversation, or we had these conversations about, no, buddy, that's, we're, we're not going to do that, and here's why, but also, this isn't the most important thing, right? Like, these are gifts, and they're good, but they're not the most important. Remember, this is about Jesus and all of this, and, and it went okay. Um, but you could feel and you could see this tension of order in his little life, and it is often the same with us. This is what Jesus offers. This is what the gospel offers, to put your life back in order the way it was always intended to be, to reorder our hearts as we see with the wise men and in turn reorder our lives, our very affections, our desires, the things that we search for, the things that we hold on to. And this doesn't mean that we don't long for other things, and it doesn't mean that a lot of those things aren't good, but it means that they all find the rightful place under a God who we believe has our best in mind, even when we don't see the whole picture, who is worthy of our worship. And it begs this question, why is this young boy, this three-month-old baby that they came to worship worthy? Why was he worthy of their worship and why is he worthy of ours? And the gifts that they give him carry such significance and they answer that question without hesitation. The gift of gold to Christ was symbolic of his divinity, that God had actually come in flesh. The gift of frankincense was this highly fragrant incense that was burned in worship as a pleasant offering as we see in Exodus 30. Frankincense being this symbol of holiness and righteousness. And then this gift of myrrh, a spice used in embalming that was symbolic of this future death, the baby born to die for humanity. And what I love about this account is that even though the wise men are making this journey to see Jesus, it's God that actually makes the first move. It's God that places a star in the sky. It's God that communicates them in a way that they can understand. This is the beauty of God's grace. And what makes it so wonderful is it's not only unmerited, but it's completely unearned. In the same way that God places this star in the sky for these men to see, he has literally reached down into our world, reached down to us, and he's offered to bring us up out of death's grasp and into new life. 
and we didn't reach out to him first. We weren't even seeking him, and we didn't meet halfway. He has done all of the work to give us hope in the hopelessness, to bring back order in the chaos, to turn our fear into peace, to give us rest that we really want and desire. He pulls us out of death. He pulls us into life, and it's only because grace upon grace upon grace, and that's how good he is, and that is why he is worthy of our worship. That's why he is worthy of your worship this morning. That's why he and he alone should have the place of deepest longing in our lives and in our hearts that manifests itself in the way that we live our life. And no, it's not easy and it's hard and we feel the tension and we botch it and we fail. And yet he's gracious enough to meet us there on our knees, offer us a hand, pull us back up and say, my grace is enough for you. Let's keep moving forward. That's why he's worthy. He's worthy of your praise and your worship this morning. And he is capable to take everything that you can throw at him, no matter how much of a mess, no matter how disordered. He wants to meet you right there. And here's the big idea. The gospel of Jesus offers rest and reorder for our greatest fears and our deepest longings. And if you're not familiar with this Sunday, this is called Epiphany Sunday. You're like, I was really curious why we're still in the Wiseman story. Christmas is over. Who planned this? Um, the church. The church planned it. Um, this is on the church calendar. It's Epiphany Sunday. And so we specifically look at this passage in Matthew 2. Now, we can think of an epiphany as simply this sudden insight or realization. But through the lens of the gospel, it's a little different. Through the lens of gospel, we don't have epiphanies so much as they have us. Epiphanies are not so much those moments when we say, ah, now I finally got it. But they are rather these moments when we say, ah, it's got me. Or, oh no, <laughs> it's got me and I need to reevaluate. Sometimes that happens in our longings. Sometimes that happens in our fears. But both situations are offering us something and both are seeking a response from us. That's what epiphanies do. They give us a glimpse into ourselves, our life, our world, and then they call for and ask for a response. That response is what distinguishes the wise men from Herod. They both had epiphanies. One worshiped, one went to fear and was gripped by it. For one party, life is reordered. And for the other, it couldn't be further than both the wise men and Herod, if we're going to be honest, they live within each of us. It's convicting, I know, but it's true. We feel this tension. They're a part of us. I'm equally convinced that wherever there's longing or fear, Jesus is waiting for our response because both find their rightful place at his feet where he freely and lovingly offers reorder and rest through the gospel of grace, through his life death and resurrection and here's what i love he doesn't give this invitation to just a select few but to all people the doors are flung open that's what a lot of this is all about that these wise men were not jewish people they were gentiles and they're the first to come and worship jesus which inaugurates this living hope for all of us that we are invited to come to rest at his feet to lay down our lives to lay down what matters most to us. I love it. Both Jew and Gentile are welcomed. Echoing this word from Isaiah. 
60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And within that, he offers to take our distorted lives. He offers to take our sin. He offers to take our mess. And if we will simply turn to him, if we will go another way, he offers us love and grace and new life. And he reignites our hope under this Messiah, under this new kingdom. There are no more outsiders. There are only insiders. There's no more you don't belong here. There's only the accepted, the adopted, the full family rights kids, no longer wandering, no longer lost, found and loved children, and how loved. This is one of my favorite quotes. This is from Augustine. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Believe it this morning. He loves you that much. So this king, he is worthy. He's worthy to be the deepest longing of your heart and capable to give you rest in the face of your greatest And so let me just ask this together as we enter this new year together. This real question, I legitimately mean it. Think about these things right now. What longing, searching, or desire has gotten a hold of you? What longing, as good as it is, needs to be reordered and placed under Jesus? That we would trust him with it. What longing, as good as it is, has become distorted and has become more important than Jesus has taken his rightful place to the point that maybe you've even taken things into your own hands to try to force a desired outcome. What longings, as good as it is, has become a demand to the point that life feels incomplete without it, and we need to hand that over to Jesus, place it underneath him. What longings simply aren't good if we're being honest, and they need to be humbly handed over and replaced with a greater God-given desire and purpose that's found in the gospel. What fears have gotten a hold of you? What keeps you paralyzed and unable to leave the place that you are? What is it about your life or relationships that you least want to face and deal with? Who or what situation creates waves of panic and anxiety? What do you most fear losing? What would it look like to hand that over to Jesus? What would it look like to trust that God is able to handle your greatest fears and give you rest? I want you to hear these words. Hear these words of your Savior, Jesus, the baby born to die, the one that flings open the doors to all men, women, and child who will come humbly at his feet. Fear not, for I am with you. I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in this journey, Jesus invites you to come, and he will meet you right there. The gospel of Jesus offers rest and reorder for our greatest fears and our deepest longings. I could use that 
Could you use that?